Welcome to Class 29. Today we will return for a while to take a closer look at Boromir's moment of moral crisis, because it's a wonderful case study of the power of the ring. Unfortunately, my microphone seems to have failed at the end of class, and I lost about the last ten minutes. When we get to that point in the class, I'll come back and give an overview of the points I touched on in those last few minutes. Okay, um, I, I, we should get started here before... Especially, we should get started since uh, I confess that I, I want to go uh, briefly backwards twice uh, and just mention two things before we move back to uh, the beginning of the Two Towers. And first, one thing that I had meant to talk about, about uh, uh, Galadriel and Celeborn, but I passed over it in our discussion of other things, is this uh, one line that Galadriel says, which is a, a really evocative one, and I wanted to make sure just not to miss it. Uh, at the bottom, if you happen to have your Fellowship of the Rings with you, at the bottom of 347, um, she is kind of introducing herself uh, and Celeborn. For the Lord of the Galathrim is accounted the wisest of the elves of Middle-earth and a giver of gifts beyond the power of kings. He has dwelt in the West since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin, I have passed over the mountains, and together through ages of the world we have fought the long defeat." That image of fighting the long defeat um, is a really powerful one, I think, um, in general, but also a really indicative one here. We have talked at various points of the ways in which things decline in Middle-earth and the the inevitable decline and the inevitable fading. Um, And it's easy when the plot is focused on men and hobbits primarily, and also when the events seem to be, I mean, things are dark, things are grim right now as we're on this very serious quest, which many of us don't expect to survive, and, and we're going to what sounds like certain death in Mordor, so it's not like it sounds exactly cheerful and we're liable to become so euphoric that we lose sight of the sad things in life, but at the same time, ultimately what they're trying to do seems like a great leap forward. Right? The world's going to become better. We're, we're trying to bring the ring to destruction. And then Sauron will fall and flowers will spring up and the world is going to get better. Right? I mean, that's the goal. You know, whether or not we think it's likely to actually work out, that's what they're trying to do. And so the world that the quest operates in seems to be, in some sense, one towards, to use a dangerous word, progress. Right? Or, or, or some kind of advance. Some, you know... Changes for the good. But we can get so caught up in that that we might forget that even if that were to happen, and, and it, it's, it's actually it's going to work out pretty well. Not to, you know, spoil the ending, but it's going to actually come out well. But anyway, even when that happens, that change, that, that, that what appears like an upward trend is still only a local upward trend. And it's only one blip in the larger pattern. The larger pattern is always towards decline. And it's always towards defeat, as Galadriel says. Um, They're fighting the long defeat. And, of course, there are two things that we can see are important about that, right? One is that it's a defeat. But the other, of course, that they're fighting it. Um, They're not not engaged in a long retreat. They're, they're, They're still fighting, even though they know. In the end, it's a defeat. What's the fight that they're fighting? In what sense are they fighting the long defeat? What actually is their fight? Goadriel and Celeborn's fight. In what sense are they fighting? What do you think? Is that they've sort of preserved this little uh, emerald of 
elvendom on Earth, so to speak, and you know, in that small niche in space, you know, they have a they have a good world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen before the general desire of the elves, the general work of the elves is towards preservation, right? Um, and that's inevitably a defeat. It may take a while. It may be a long defeat. And the longer the defeat, the better, I mean, the more they're succeeding in their fight. But, but it still is going to be, it's still going to be a defeat. Um, as we talked about, even the parallels back to the first stage suggest this. Lothlorien is a lot like Doriath, but it's not Doriath. Galadriel is awesome, but she's not Melian. She's not able just to fence out Lothlorien and, and, and actually physically prevent any evil creatures from coming in. In fact, we see this army of orcs march into Lothlorien. I mean, they get chased down, and remember that when, when they're walking towards Karaskoathon, they meet the elven host marching in the other direction to go hunt down the orcs that, that, that passed down the Silverload. So, I mean, they're... But they can get in. It's not Doriath, which was actually protected, actually inviolate for a while. Except for huge wolves with Silmarils in their tummies. But other than that, <laughs> comparatively inviolate. Um, now, so again, it's, everything is lesser. Even back in the Council of Elrond, we might remember this. Um, Elrond makes that statement about Frodo, and you know, and, and it, you know, in the moment at the very, very end when he is affirming Frodo's choice, if I have, if I have read aright all that I have heard, I believe this task to be appointed for you, Frodo. Um, and then he adds, um, and if all of the great elf friends of old were here, your your place would be among them. So Frodo is going. <laughs> Frodo Baggins is going to rank among. Do, do you remember? Does anyone recall who, whom he names? And, and Baron, yeah. Hurin, Turin, and Baron, and Frodo. Like the pantheon of the great elf friends. And, and just that comparison. I mean, it's not that I'm arguing. I would argue that Elrond is just being condescending to Frodo here. He's saying something important. And, of course, obviously Frodo would be heroic in a slightly different way um, than, say, Turin. For instance, well, for Frodo's sake, we certainly hope he's going to be a hero in a different way from Turin, but um, he doesn't have any sisters, fortunately, for him. But um, (laughs) what? Anyway, (laughs) I said we're hoping it would be different. But anyway, the point is, again, we can can see the change. It's it's like the change in scale, right? I mean, of course you can't be the same as Baron and Hurin and Turin. Nobody can be. Even Aragorn, who is a throwback in some sense, he is almost as good as one of the previous Numenorean people. But even he doesn't measure up to Isildur. And I mean, he, uh, he, he says this to Boromir. I know I don't really look much like the statues of Isildur and Anarion that you've seen down in Gondor. I, I'm just, you know, I'm Isildur's heir, not Isildur himself. No, Isildur himself... I, Remember, threw down Sauron, stepped on his neck, and cut the ring off his hand. Right? Aragorn's not going to do that. He's not going to come close to doing that. Um, every, everything has declined. Everything moved down. This is one of the reasons why they're saying, hey, you know, the last alliance, that's why it was the last alliance. It couldn't, even if we tried, again, 
elves have faded too much. When Saruman says to Gandalf, there's no more hope in elves or dying Numenor, well, his attitude is not really the best, but he kind of has a point. There isn't a hope that the good guys can band together and just fight Sauron on the field like they did at the end of the Second Age. Couldn't happen. Isn't going to happen. So all of these things I point to just as a way of illustrating what Goadriel talks about, what she means when she describes the long defeat, the long defeat of Elvendom in Middle-earth, the long defeat of these memories of the ancient times that they're keeping alive. They'll be able to be retained as memories. They'll be able to be retained as stories, but not as living realities. Not too much longer. You won't be able to even go to Lothlorien and get that glimpse of the elder days alive. And this was something, we'll come back to this, especially as we get towards the end of the book. Um, There are many who accuse Tolkien, uh, Tolkien in person and his writings in general, of being depressive, both depressive and depressing. Um, You know, there are many people who read his books and they're like, man, boy, this guy really, uh, you know, needed to pick me up. Um, and it's, and I, I think that, I mean, there's, there's grounds for it. I, I don't agree with that in the long run. I don't think that ultimately his works are gloomy um, or sort of negative in that sense, but there is sadness. Um, and he himself spoke in similar terms. Uh, he, in one of his letters, says, yeah, we're, we're all fighting the long defeat. I mean, that's, that's how life is. That's how the world is. Um, A great man once said, anyone who says anything different is selling something. Um, I'm glad there's one person in the room who got that quotation. (laughs) The other thing that I wanted to talk about, apart from the long defeat, um, and this actually comes from an email I received just this past week uh, from uh, from someone who's been uh, been listening along with our class. Um, His name is Tom Routon. He made a wonderful point. Uh, about the splintered light, so wonderful, I wanted to bring it up uh, and and share it with you. Um, We talked in class about how as Saruman takes white light and splinters it, he feels like he's amplifying it. He feels like he's increasing his power, that the move from Saruman the white to Saruman of many colors uh, is a step up, when, as we pointed out in class, it's really a subtraction. He's really, in splintering, the, in splintering the light, in splintering his own white into many colors, he's, uh, he is subtracting from himself. Um, uh, Tom, who emailed me, uh, points out a, a very important parallel here. We've also talked at several points about the way that both Morgoth and Sauron have reduced their own power. Sauron p- puts his own power Uh, in the ring, so much of his own self that when the ring is destroyed, he's going to be destroyed, and he knows this. This is why the ring is so important to him. Morgoth did did the same. As time goes on, he disperses himself among his followers, among his his creatures, like the dragons, um, until eventually he is weaker, much weaker than the rest of the Valor. He's no longer one of the great because he's dispersed himself. Uh, And uh, Tom points out that Sauron is, do, is here doing to himself what Saruman describes doing to light. That just that same splintering, that same dispersal, that same uh, move towards 
fragmentation, which seems like wisdom, which seems like power, is not. Um, And both of them, both Morgoth and Sauron, who do this, are falling prey to the same kind of foolishness that Saruman, that we see sort of almost, as it were, before our eyes, Saruman falling prey to or falling into. Um, And this comes back to a, a, a larger principle that I've talked about several times and will continue to see again and again, that evil is always self-destructive and evil people always end up causing their own downfall. And I don't mean this um, in the sense of, you know, like evil people always end up making a bad choice and doing something self-destructive. That evil by its own nature is self-destructive. Um, that that's as, 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 as fundamentally as I can argue that I would um, in Tolkien's world Evil is itself self-consuming. It is not self-sustaining. It's not possible to be evil and self-sustaining. It is intrinsically self-destructive. And I think that that's a really wonderful illustration of it. Sauron does do to himself what Saruman does to light. Anyway, just wanted to share that. Now, back to Boromir, which is what I said last time we would start with talking. And so we're kind of, after like a long preamble, we can now consider ourselves starting. Um, We left off with Boromir being tempted. We saw his pride, right? We were looking at sort of some of the background. And uh, what I didn't get time to do last time, but I want to do now, is uh, look at the progress of his thought. As he gets the first of what I have called before ring-induced monologues. 389... The bottom of 388 is when he's, you know, he's first uh, proposing, hey, we should go to Minas Tirith. And Frodo brings up the ring. No hope while the ring lasts, said Frodo. Ah, the ring. Funny you should bring that up, says Boromir. The ring. Is it not a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt for so small a thing? So small a thing. And I have seen it only for an instant in the house of Elrond. Could I not have a sight of it again? Do we hear what's happening here? What does this sound like? It sounds like this. We, we can see here the same kind of initial stream of rationalization that we've seen before in other characters, right? Bilbo put on the ring, and you're still in the Shire. It's no big. The ring, the ring is. It's just a small little thing, isn't it? Funny. I, couldn't I just see? I don't want to touch it or anything. It's not like I'm going to try to take it from you or something. He, he's not even himself thinking this at this point, right? I just want to see it again. That's perfectly sensible, right? Perfectly reasonable request. Since we're suffering all this trouble for this ring. Frodo looked up. His heart went suddenly cold. He caught the strange gleam in Boromir's eyes. Like Boromir is not entirely driving the bus right now. (laughs) Yet his face was still kind and friendly. He's not yet transfigured. He's not like taken over. He's just having these thoughts. It is best that it should lie hidden, he answered. As you wish, I care not, said Boromir. Yet may I not even speak of it? For you seem ever to think only of its power in the hands of the enemy, of its evil uses, not of its good. The world is changing, you say. Minas Tirith will fall if the ring lasts. But why? Certainly if the ring were with the enemy. But why if it were with us? Were you not at the council? Because we cannot use it, and what is done with it turns to evil. And here, by saying we cannot, you remember I talked about this before in the movies, they talk like, you know, it is inoperable by us. When Frodo says here, we cannot use it, 
that is more of a moral imperative than, a, than a, an operational issue. Boromir got up and walked about impatiently. So you go on. Gandalf, Elrond, all these folk have taught you to say so. For themselves, they may be right. These elves and half-elves and wizards, they would come to grief, perhaps. Yet often I doubt if they are wise men and not merely timid, but each to his own kind. Again, you see the counter-arguments that, that he is immediately coming out with. Notice he's not saying everyone was lying. It's because that's not, that's not the way. It's not the way we've ever seen it happen, right? It's never like... When Frodo was in the Shire and wanting to put on the ring, the thoughts that came into his mind were not, screw what Gandalf said, just put it on. It was, it, was, it was, oh no, but you know, that doesn't really apply and it's probably okay anyway. And this is where Boromir is going too. True-hearted men, they will not be corrupted. We of Minas Tirith have been staunch through many long years of trial. We do not desire the power of wizard lords, only strength to defend ourselves. That sounds like a good rationalization. Oh, wait, there's more. Strength in a just cause. Look, this is a good idea. Right? This is not, I mean, wow. Not only is this not anything sketchy he's proposing, this is virtuous. Right? And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the ring of power. If chance you call it. Uh, yeah, I was about to bring up, he, he doesn't give that qualifier. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone among the wise does. But I'm wondering if he's not implying it. He's saying, hey, look. It's destiny, man. It is a gift, I say. A gift to the foes of Mordor. It is mad not to use it, to use the power of the enemy against him. Now, it is a gift, I say. A gift to the foes of Mordor. Wow, that sounds Boromir the Pious, right? He's like... Sounding like, oh, if I have read aright all that I have heard, right? This is Boromir's version of that, right? Clearly, this is not change. It is destiny. We're being given, a, by trying to destroy the ring, we are throwing away a gift that has been given to us by fate, by God himself. It is divinely appointed for us to take the ring. That's why it came to us. This argument is getting better and better. And then... The fearless, the ruthless, these alone will achieve victory. Okay, now I'm uncomfortable. The fearless, the ruthless? What could not a warrior do in this hour? A great leader. What could not Aragorn do, for instance, as the first one who comes to mind? Or, if he refuses, on the outside chance, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. How I would drive the hosts of Mordor, and all men would flock to my banner. All men would flock to my banner. Notice the shift that's happening now. Even just in the middle of that one sentence, it becomes more and more about him. And now he's off. Boromir strode up and down, speaking ever more loudly. Almost he seemed to have forgotten Frodo, while his talk dwelt on walls and weapons and the mustering of men. And he drew plans for great alliances and glorious victories to be. And he cast down Mordor, this sounds good, and became, <laughs> and became himself a mighty king, benevolent and wise. That's good. <laughs> Instead of a dark lord, you shall have Boromir. Exactly, but he'll be benevolent and wise. Right? It's... Notice the end here is no longer the overthrow of Sauron. We've strayed away from it as a gift to the foes of Mordor to, it, yeah, a gift to Boromir. It shall be the foundation stone of my empire. Not so good. 
and they tell us to throw it away? I do not say destroy it. That might be well if reason could show any hope of doing so. It does not. The only plan that is proposed to us is that a halfling should walk blindly into Mordor and offer the enemy every chance of recapturing it for himself. Folly. Now remember, it's not that he's wrong about that. Remember Gandalf and Elrond's exchange. So, uh, should we do the wise thing or the stupid thing? And they're both like, stupid. Yeah, that's that's, that's where we should go. I mean, that was the plan all along, not to choose great wisdom. Um, all right, let's go with Pippin and Mary instead of Gorfindel. Let's, let's, um, let's find the weakest, least qualified person around the table at the Council of Elrond and put him in charge of the whole show. That sounds like, that sounds like the best idea. They say, that is the best idea, right? I mean, they, they, have, they have, in their greater than Boromir's wisdom, they see that that's, that's the story being told here. That's how this is supposed to work. And this is why Elrond says, if, if you don't find a path, nobody will. Um, but Boromir's right to say, you know, from an abstract standpoint, I don't say an objective standpoint, as his is far from objective at this moment, but from an outside standpoint, this looks stupid. It does. He's right. Um, there's a lot to work with, with the rationalization process that's going on. Is it not your good sense that revolts? Um, no, I am afraid. Simply afraid. Um, and then, of course... When Boromir turns on him, we see this is just sort of the next step. Um, you know, he's uh, being friendly. Come with me, Frodo. You need. I'm not trying to say you can't go to Mordor. Just come, come get help on your trip. Why are you so unfriendly? I am a true man, neither thief nor tracker. We've talked about that. I need your ring. You know that now. That you now know. But I will give you my word that I do not desire to keep it. Will you not at least let me make trial of my plan? Lend me the ring. Yes, lend me the ring. Yeah, lend me the ring. This should remind us of Saruman, right? The lie that Gandalf sees through. Let us find the ring and we shall rule. And Gandalf's like, don't bother. Only one hand at a time can wield the one. Don't bother to say we. Yeah, exactly. There's no point to that. Um, Lend me the ring. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you'll just hand it right back. And, you know, what, a week maybe? How long, how long a loan period do you think you need, Boromir? You know, two weeks do you? Maybe a month and a half? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, come on now. You're not fooling anybody. Um, it is by our own folly that the enemy will defeat us. See, it's still about the noble cause. How it angers me. Fool, obstinate fool, running willfully to death and ruining our cause. If any mortals have claim to the ring, it is the men of Numenor, not halflings. Again, notice the shift there. I have a right to it. Like Gollum, like Bilbo. He's not exactly, he's not, he's not bringing his birthday into it, but, <laughs> but he's bringing, yeah, exactly, yes, <laughs> yeah. He's not bringing his birthday into it, but he is bringing his birthright into it, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, his point here. But now watch this. It is not yours, save by unhappy chance. It might have been mine. It should be mine. Give it to me. Unhappy chance? By an unfortunate piece of luck? But that doesn't happen, Boromir. There's no such thing as an unhappy chance in the sense in which he means it. It's unfortunate for him. It's unpleasant for him. Um, But it's... So now he's reversing himself. Before he was on the, ah, it is chance. It is therefore a gift. It is destiny. Now, destiny is against him, and he's frustrated. 
It should have been mine. It was meant to come to me. Like that vision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, the steps, we are now very far removed from the quite plausible series of rationalizations that he started off this with. And now he's just transformed. Though he still, he doesn't just get, you know, rabid at this point. He still uh, is able to speak softly. Come, come, my friend. Why not get rid of it? Why not be free of your doubt and fear? You can lay the blame on me, if you will. You can say that I was too strong and took it by force. For I am too strong for you, halfling. (laughs) Um, Which, I mean, he's what, like ten times stronger than he is, he says? Anyway, um, notice what he's doing now. We hear again a plausible set of, of rationalizations, but it's not his own now. Now he's just the instrument of it. To Frodo? Ah, I can give you a plausible explanation. You don't even have to admit that you gave me the ring. Right? You could just blame it on me and say I took it by force. So give it to me, and we'll say I beat you up. <laughs> or I could just beat you up, one or the other, right? But, um, but again, he, has, he, he is now, he's no longer the victim of the rings process. He's now the spokesperson of the rings process. You see? And he's, his fair and pleasant face was hideously changed. A raging fire was in his eyes. Um, and he moves on from there to this wholly irrational accusation that he's going to, Frodo's plan is to take the ring to Sauron and sell them all. If you've only waited for your chance to leave us in the lurch, now reason has completely vanished. The main thing I want to emphasize here First, I want to look at this, of course, because it's one of the most detailed kind of case studies of the ring's influence on somebody that we get anywhere. Um, But this is the breaking of the fellowship. Fellowship is broken right now. Um, It is very important, very important, that the first volume, that is that book two, does not end with the death of Boromir. The death of Boromir is not the breaking of the fellowship. This is the breaking of the fellowship. And the response to that is the scattering of the fellowship and Frodo's choice in the face of it to go to Mordor and Sam's to accompany him. But this is the moment when the fellowship is broken. Um, This It's not that I really blame Peter Jackson at all for the decision to put the death of Boromir at the end of the first <laughs> film. It's an obviously more climactic moment. Um, it's lovely, most of the things they do with it in the film. Uh, I mean, the final speech between, you know, the final exchange between Aragorn and Boromir is genuinely moving, um, but that's not the breaking. What happens at Boromir's death? Boromir's death is not the breaking of the fellowship. What, what's the significance of Boromir's death? He, he tries to make amends in a little bit. He tries to protect um, Pippin and Mary, and, and he takes all these arrows in his chest in order to protect the house. Yeah, he gives up his life for Mary and Pippin. And it might seem a small thing. Like, okay, I tried to take the ring from Frodo, and then, well, at least I died to save Mary and Pippin. It's not exactly reversing what I did with Frodo, but it is clearly... My... What does Aragorn say to him as he's dying? What are the last words that Boromir hears? I say the last that he hears because Aragorn asks him some questions right after, like, too late, right? 
Was Frodo with him? Wait, no, he's already dead now, right? But what, what, do you remember the last thing that he hears, Cassie? Do you remember? The great thing about Paul. Yes. He, he, he tells him that, that Boromir lays it on him, on Aragorn, to go to Gondor and protect them. And he says, I'll do that. What else does he say? He says, um, you, I, I don't know what part you play in driving off Frodo, but you've done a good thing helping Mary and Pippin. Mm-hmm. He, he emphasizes his, his, his words. He says, Boromir's last words, he says, I tried to take the ring from Frodo. I have failed. I have paid. And Aragorn contradicts him. You haven't failed. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory, he says, because of... It was destiny that Frodo had to leave them, and Barbara um, was fulfilling his destiny and trying to take it from him. So. But it's not that he's affirming that trying to take the ring is a good thing. I mean, you're right that it works. I mean, of course, as we always see, when people do bad things, the result of those bad actions turns out to be a good thing. Um, that's almost always the case. So that's true. But, of course, it's not to say, like, you tried to take the ring from Frodo? Two thumbs up, man. That was exactly what you were supposed to do. It's not exactly what you were supposed to do. It does work out well, but that wasn't the plan. Travis? Uh, so it's all fate. Doesn't that sort of make Formir like a Judas character, like someone had to do it? Well, no, yeah, it makes him exactly like Judas, though exactly in this way. Um, Judas, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, um, how topical. It's Good Friday. Uh, <laughs> It is, man. I didn't plan that. It's <laughs> Travis's fault. Uh, so I'm so glad you brought it up. The, betray- <laughs> the betrayal of Jesus by Judas is the archetypal example of exactly this thing. Um, and the Gospels, all of the Gospels that talk about this, a.k.a. all of the Gospels, are um, really clear on this point. Um, the Son of Man must be betrayed. But woe unto him by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Yes, the crucifixion of Jesus was a really good thing in the end. Worked out real well um, uh, in the end, really was supposed to happen. But the betrayal of Jesus remains a really, really bad thing to have done. Um, And it is not an exoneration of Judas to say, well, but in the end, the crucifixion worked out nicely for everybody else's benefit, you know, so thanks to Judas on behalf of everybody else. No, that was still wrong for him to do. And both sides of that are emphasized really strongly in the Gospels. And Tolkien is hitting that same kind of note, hits that same kind of note all the time, never quite as large as that. Um, but remember Mandos and, and, and Manwe um, when Feanor rebels, right? Um, his deeds will be, you know, the deeds of song for, and yet remain evil, right? Um, evil shall be good to have been, and yet remain evil. Um, and both sides of that are strongly emphasized. Chita? Uh, as another wise man once said, uh, do or do not, there is no trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Formier tries to take the ring, but he doesn't actually get to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, he fails. He, fa- he, he, well, he fails at failing, right? And so, <laughs> therefore, uh, therefore, succeeds. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's... And the important thing... Remember, he comes back right away. 
I mean, before Frodo is like, and Frodo doesn't hear him, I, because, but like before Frodo's, like the pitter-patter of Frodo's little feet have vanished up the hillside, Boromir is already weeping and come to himself. Um, and his, he characterizes, a madness came over me, but it's past. But it's past. That's what he's shouting towards Frodo as Frodo is vanishing, right? So he, um, the reason that he fails to get the ring he doesn't try very long. He recovers himself pretty quickly. Um, and that's clearly uh, to his, to his uh, benefit. Yeah, yeah. Um, when he says he has conquered, a few of, a few have gained such a victory. One has gained such a victory from reading his way. Bilbo, by uh, realizing the wing's influence was bad and rebelling against it in any way. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I mean, there's it's this... Sort of, I guess, also, so too, so... Yes, and that, I think, is the point. I mean, on the one hand, when he says, look, you have conquered, few have gained such a victory, we might be tempted to look at the immediate physical surroundings. I mean, he killed, like, 20 or 30 orcs by himself, um, though he failed there, too. I mean, he didn't... They still took off Merry and Pippin. But, I mean, that was pretty impressive. But, yeah, but that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Right? The victory that he gained is in coming back. Right? He resisted. Not, I mean, unfortunately, didn't all the way through. He didn't initially. But he does, he does reject the call of the ring. Um, and come, and that's, n- not everybody does that. Once, once a person is in the grip of the ring, to the extent that Boromir was, um, rarely can they just snap out of it, but he snapped out of it. And not just snapped out of it in the sense of now he's like weeping and apologizing to Frodo, but then immediately reverses it in action. Now he's going to move on to uh, sacrificing his life to protect the hobbits, um, which is just very directly opposite to the whole trajectory of his thought while under the influence of the ring. He has conquered. And you think about what's the parallel here? When we see him shot full of orc arrows, whom should we be remembering? We haven't, uh, uh, we haven't done the, the typology thing in a while. But I want to do some typology here today. As he dies, of whom is he an echo? What other mighty warriors shot to death by orc arrows? Isildur. Yes, Isildur. After the ring took him. Isildur, however, failed, did not conquer. Isildur claims the ring, keeps the ring, and is betrayed by the ring. He doesn't, he doesn't abandon the ring. The ring left him, right? The same could be said of Isildur as, was, as Gandalf said of Gollum, right? So the peril, Jordan, that you make is right. Um, there are some from whom the ring was taken. There are others who relinquished the ring. And that's a small group. Um, Bilbo gave it to Frodo. Gandalf said no thank you when it was offered to him. Goadriel, um, sort of implicitly Elrond also, um, though he doesn't, see, doesn't demonstrate much conflict in that. And Boromir um, have declined the ring, have escaped from it. Huh? Tom Bombadil. Oh, Tom Bombadil, yes. Yes, that's true. We should, we should include Tom. Um, he's a he, no, he I, seems to have been utterly untempted by the ring 
Um, but yes, yes, I think that's that's. Uh, yeah, Tony. <laughs> Does the ring not necessarily that it has a mind of its own, but it keeps betraying people? Is it? Just Sauron's will that is trying to make the ring, and, and I'm wondering, does the ring have a goal? Is it trying to get back to Sauron? Yeah. Is all these betrayals, you know, they might almost be working to get it back to Mordor, but in the end, it's it's fate or chance that, you know, it's, it's working out in favor of the good. And I'm wondering, yeah. is, is that a Lubitar working the ring, or is it the ring just kind of screwed up? Um, both. 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 I mean, <laughs> remember, uh, first of all, remember Iluvatar's speech to Melkor way back in the Ainulindale. Here's where we broke off, I'm afraid. What I was saying was that Iluvatar pointed out to Melkor that no one can change the music in Iluvatar's despite, and that anyone who tries will only prove his instrument in the doing of things more wonderful than they could have imagined. This goes not only for Sauron, but for the ring as well. After this, I brought up two more typological parallels between events in the first three chapters of The Two Towers and in The Silmarillion, in addition to the Boromir-Isildur parallel. The first was the three hunters, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, pursuing across the land the orc squadron that had captured their friends, munching Lembus all the way. This should remind us of... Beleg Strongbow, chasing down the orcs who carried off Turin Turambar. This situation is fortunately much less tragic, but it is no less heroic. We are reminded of this when the three companions meet Eomir, and he declares that this deed of three friends will be sung in many a hall. The second was the image Pippin describes of Merry standing alone, surrounded by his enemies, cutting off the hands of the orcs who were trying to seize him. This should remind us of... Hurin in the Fens of Serek, as the rest of the men of Dor Lomen lie dead about him, and he wields his axe two-handed with the dismembered hands and arms of his enemies clinging to him and encumbering him, until at last he is overborne and captured. This little parallel is an interesting one, as it involves an enormous difference in scale. It is hard not to find a comparison between Mary Brandybuck and Hurin Thalion, at least a little comical. But the parallel serves a few serious purposes. For one, it recalls the tragedy of the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, and the sacrifice of Hurin, Huor, and their people, to which Boromir's sacrifice might be compared. Remember that Hurin and his men died while delaying the forces of Morgoth, so that the people of Gondolin might escape. Boromir, by forcing the orcs to stand and fight, may also have provided the time for Frodo and Sam to escape, for if the orcs had not been hindered there, and spooked by Boromir's horn calls, they might have stayed to investigate further especially Grishnok and the orcs of Mordor, who would have been very interested in evidence of any members of the party crossing the river to the east bank. Also, the parallel between Merry and Hurin suggests that Merry, and Pippin as well, do indeed have some important part to play, and they are not merely luggage, as Pippin is thinking. Finally, if the memory of Hurin's last stand should induce his final battle cry of Day shall come again to echo in our ears at this point, that too would be no bad thing. That was pretty much it. In the next class, we'll move on to chapters 4 through 6 of Book 3, which will bring us to Treebeard, the return of Gandalf, and the healing of Theoden. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.